Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I sort of can't believe it, but it is already October. I don't know how we wound up in October again so quickly because I swear it was just October, like, I don't know, a month ago. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If you look forward to this podcast every week, we would love it if you would post a uh, review on Apple Podcasts for us. It will help more people to find us. So if you don't mind going to Apple Podcasts, searching for us and leaving us a review that pushes us closer to the top where more people can find us. Um, Today, we're going to be answering your questions. We do that every few weeks. Today, we're doing it again. But before we get to that, um, I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Karen Spencer, who's a former admissions officer at Georgetown and at Franklin and Marshall. And as I mentioned, she's my colleague. So we work together now. Hi, Karen. Hi. Nice (laughs) to see you again. You too. So the first in our first segment today, we're talking about state schools and essays and I will tell you that this was prompted because, as many of our listeners know, I'm going through this process uh, right now with my own son, which is kind of crazy. After yes, close to 20 years of doing this work, I am now actually going through it with my own child. Um, and I got hung up on Penn State's application. So Penn State has, um, on the Common App, they do not require the main essay on the Common App. So everybody knows you write one essay, you use it for the Common App, and it goes to all of the schools on the Common App. Well, not all of the schools who are on the Common App actually require the essay. And so Penn State does not require the essay. However, in Penn State's application, or in their supplement to the Common App, they have an optional essay prompt that is basically sort of tell us something that you information that you didn't have another place to share more or less is kind of um, how it's worded. And it got me thinking, if I am challenged by that, if I need to reach out to my colleagues and say, hey, how do you guys handle this when you have students applying to Penn State, then our listeners must have questions about this. And so that is how you and I come to be talking about state schools and essays. So In terms of getting us started, what's your general sense of how much or how little essays factor into the process at state schools? Sure. So, I mean, like every other answer we ever give, right? Of course, we always have to start with it depends, right? And we're going to dive into that a little bit further in a minute, I'm sure, right? So, you know, state schools are not all the same. Um, You know, some this is going to be more important than others. Um, I think it, for a lot of students, I know we're thinking about like the small private schools or super, super selective schools where I almost guarantee it's being read um, and read closely, especially assuming you're a competitive applicant to begin with. Um, I think here it depends on the school, um, whether kind of how they read, how competitive of a 
state school they are, um, and a few other things. And so um, I think that's really going to factor in in terms of how important this is. I think it's not going to be the be-all, end-all, um, but I also think, and there's going to be some places I bet it's never even read. Um, so I think right. there's going to be those schools. And then I think there's schools where this is really going to help a kid on the bubble or, or not, as the case may be, um, kind of weed out those kids who took the supplement seriously. Um, so I think it can be a nice litmus test for state schools for whom, you know, it may not be as holistic of a process as it is for other schools, but this is their one opportunity, especially for either some of their selective programs, you know, whether it's their engineering or their business program or whatever it is that's their their thing they're known for at their school, um, or for kids who are really on the bubble and you're thinking, huh, what do I want to do with this kid? Um, and, you know, and I know I'm supposed to say kid. I still say kid. Sorry. I know they're not student. a I know <laughs> student. Um, but, you know, like what, the, what am I going to do with this student who's like a little, you know, what do if they're like that borderline waitlist admit kit, I think that's definitely something that where the essay might play a real piece. Right. So I'm going to go back to Penn State for a minute because um, I think there's a few things here. One of them is that I did sit through a virtual information session for Penn State this summer. And I do not recall, and I didn't take it in my notes, but I don't recall the essay coming up at all. That is generally, in my opinion, a sign that the essay is not really a big part of the process, if it's a part of the process at all. So the fact that it didn't come up, the fact that as they talked about the things to be thinking about and to be focused on, the things that I heard more about were deadlines and they were test optional and what that means and how to address that in the application um, how the fact that you need to select an alternate campus, that's part of their application requirements. All of these different things they covered, they did not talk about the essay. But I also think an important part there is that their honors program is a separate application too. And I do think that that is, if, if this is all encompassing and this is, this is deciding scholarships and this is deciding honors programs and this, then the essay may be, you know, used for other things, if not admissions. But here at Penn State, that is not the case. Well, right. And actually, I was going to point to that. So the first thing, though, is the idea that so what many of you may not be aware of is when you when a student applies to a school via the common app that does not require the personal statement, you are asked the the applicant is asked, do you want to send along the personal statement or not? So what I have now had students do for Penn State is take their main essay, shorten it, to 500 words because the optional Penn State essay is only 500 words and um, submit that and then not send the common app essay because it's one and the same. I think the alternate is you send the common app essay and you don't fill out the optional. I think either one can work. And really my gut is they're not going to read it, but at least it shows that there is, it's a serious application that you weren't just saying, okay, anyone who doesn't require the essay, I'm just going to send along an application because why not? My parents are willing to spend the money, the 75 the $80. So I'm just going to send it along. But the honors college is a totally different thing. And we don't need to talk about the individual prompts, but what's your sense of that, how important the essays are there? So Penn State Triers College Honors Program is would be a whole thing for me right now. I could spend 20 minutes talking about that, <laughs> and you don't want to hear my thoughts on that. So um, there are 10 essays for the honors program at Penn State, which I'm just going to float that out there and let that settle in for people. And they're not <laughs> short either. These are not 100-word, tell-me-your-favorite books. Like, 
these are essays, like 800 word essays. Um, so I do think like with other colleges, this is, I mean, that would have scared, I mean, I was a good student. I would have seen that and be like, nope, like the state would have <laughs> right. been a safety for me. And I still would have been like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, so I think it is a real um, a place to weed out kids who are like, not worth it to me. I mean, I, listen, I have students who, who've seen that and have said the same thing and who would probably or would be a great fit for the program and are like, no, thank you. So I think it is a screen out of, of just you're weeding out kids already, kind of like the main essay is, right, of, okay, right. if, you know, who actually answered this? Um, and then it, this is a separate application for them. So I do think when um, Penn State is, is different in that, okay, this is one thing for admittance, and then this is a different thing if you want to be in the honors college. Right. And so those essays I would definitely take serious. If that's something, if you're like, I like Penn State, but I'm only going if I get in the honors college, then you should spend a lot of time on those essays because those, those are the kind of things that are going to make or break that application, right? Because that's one of the only things they have that's different than the rest of the right. And, you know, uh, over time, I mean, it's an excellent honors college. I've seen students choose Penn State and the honors college over some other highly, highly attractive options, including um, Penn and, and, you know, where I used to work and schools like that, because it's it's a great school and the price is really attractive when you compare it to what you'd be paying at some of those schools. So I think the bottom line message here is that for their general admissions process, which is fairly numbers-based, the essay is going to not really weigh in. But for an honors college where you are creating a community, where it's something that's much more highly sought after, where they require 10 essays, which is kind of crazy. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I don't know another school that requires so many. <laughs> that's a lot. All right. So that's Penn State. Um, we are not, today is not about Penn State. Today is more general than that. But why don't we talk a little bit about um, schools, some of the big state schools or bigger state schools that we know are more popular where the sense is that essays are clearly part of the process. Can you walk us through a few of those? So I think, you know, when we're, you know, I always say I, when we're talking about whether essays matter, we're not talking about the following kinds of schools. We're not talking about the UCs, right? The UCs right. say they read them. We know they read them. Yes. Um, the University of Michigan, the University of Virginia, um, you know, the schools like that that are particularly selective. Um, any of those, I, you know, I think any state school that admits maybe 25% or less of its applicant poll, right? You should assume that essay, like any private, selective private school, is reading that essay. And it's it's factoring it in some capacity. I think that, that's a given, right? I think of those right. schools almost like private schools. Um, I think where, you know, where it becomes then a little bit more tricky are those not Michigan's, not UVA's, but kind of your next tier, right? Your University of Wisconsin, um, UMass Amherst. Um, those are where Purdue, especially for engineering, um, schools that are not, you know, Berkeley, but, you know, this isn't going through a computer and that's it probably. Like there's somewhere, this is right. where we're in a little bit of um, no man's land of what are we actually doing with that? I think those are the trickiest ones to kind of really wrap your mind around how selective or how important the essay has to be for those. Um, I think my personal philosophy on that is, um, and I know you have thoughts on this, but you know, I think if you're going to a really selective program, so if you want to be an English major at Purdue, do I think that essay is going to play a major role? Maybe not, if I'm being honest. Right. If you're an engineering major at Purdue, which you know, and that's where it becomes really super selective. Do I think that essay may come into more of a uh, more uh, have more weight? Yes, I do. Right. 
computer um, science, things like that. Science, anything that your college is known for that is having, you know, is going to be much more selective. Um, the Kelly School of Business at IU, yes. right? That is going to be a much more selective program than being, say, a history major might be nothing against history majors. It's just that's the way it is at, at IU. You've um, just named yeah. my major and my husband's major. So well, there you go. <laughs> we do all right, people. So yeah, it's exactly. not like you can't I was work. A psych major, you'll be fine. You'll be totally <laughs> right. fine. Um, so you will be employed. I promise. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think those are schools that are more interesting to think about. How selective is not only this school, but in this program within the greater context. And I think that's where right. essays at those kinds of schools um, definitely may come into play. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's fair. I also think if a school has supplemental essays, which is what we're really talking about with these schools, that is something to pay attention to. They may actually not really be reading. They may ask you to submit your personal essay. They may not have the time to read that, but they may have the time to read the supplements. And so I'm not suggesting that you don't do a, a, a thorough or good job on your main essay because there are plenty of schools where that is going to be really important. But what I am saying is that if you're applying to schools that have supplemental essay questions, you should be responding to them, especially when they're specific, right? The thing about that, not to harp on Penn State, but the thing about the Penn State one is it's not specific at all. It's just very like, if there's Tell something about important, yourself. right, if there's something important you need us to know, let us know what it is. Whereas at UMass Amherst, they are specifically asking, why did you select this major? Purdue, same. Actually, if you're applying to both those schools, they essentially have the same two prompts. But, you know, and, and, and why here, right? That's a very different type of question than just tell us about yourself. Right, right. And yeah. And when you see that, I think that's a sign you need to be more you need to pay attention to it. Be more thoughtful it. of it, right? Especially the UMass Amherst. It's a hundred word essay. Right. Do it well. It's a hundred words. Pay right. attention. This right? is not hard. No. Well, do it well. It might feel hard. It's not hard. It's not hey, hard. you could be doing 10 essays for Penn State's Honors College. Exactly. Exactly. Everything is relative, people. Think about it like from that perspective. So um, with that in mind, I think another, there's another sort of interesting and, and I, and I thing that comes up and, you know, one that for me, I actually sat with someone in the Clemson admissions office this summer. And one thing that she shared with me is that um, the essay is not a part of their formal process, but they do look at it. So what's your take on that sort of assessment. I, I won't lie. And I like Clemson. I have a lot of kids who like Clemson. So this is no, and this is not unique to Clemson. But I think either. Clemson is great and it's not yeah. unique to Clemson. Yeah, I love it. It's not remotely unique to Clemson. I think, you know, I, I, so a good point of this, I asked my colleague, our colleague, Kenan, cause he used to work at, um, a, you know, a relatively not super selective state school. And I said, you know, what did you do with the essay? He's like, well, we definitely read it. And then I said, okay. And what did you do with it? He was like, kind of make sure you didn't confess to like committing murder. He was like, pretty, you know, it's like, really? That was really, he's like, I don't really remember. We did read it, but I don't remember ever really doing anything with it. And so um, again, I think it's, you know, just to look for big red flags, um, you know, anything like that. So I do think, you know, it's something again, making sure you did it. Maybe you're a recruited athlete and the, the admissions person is making sure you can string two sentences together. I was a recruited right. athlete, so I'm not making fun. Don't send hate mail. I'm, so I'm not saying anything, but like, or you're getting in for some manner of fashion that's not strictly academic, right? I want to make sure you can string two sentences together that you've, you've given some thought to this. Um, but I think, 
um, I think for a lot of schools, this isn't going to play. And I at least appreciate it when schools are honest. I had a student go to Virginia Tech recently who are they were pretty much admitted like, we're not reading these. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay. And I think that's hard because as parents, I would think then why do you have these specific questions? Because in this regard, right? Virginia Tech has very specific questions. They yeah. also ask like a hundred and say, give you 120 words. And that's also another conversation for another day. But, um, you know, like I can understand the confusion of these are really specific questions too. Um, I think, you know, like in Virginia Tech's case back in the day, they got a new provost. They really had this new mindset and they really did want to kind of have these essays and be able to part of it. I suspect there though, that they simply realized they didn't have time to read them, right? right? These are massive schools with massive amounts of applications and you can't go over them with a fine tooth comb. I could barely get through my essay load at Georgetown and, and you know, and get through all of that. Um, so I think in some guys, it's like a good idea. And maybe for us liver of kids, it really matters. But for, I think the Clemson's and Virginia Tech's of the world, I don't probably think this is, in, again, unless you confess to being a sociopath, probably not right. going to matter. Well, this brings me actually to Pitt, which is interesting. So on Pitt used to have a couple of optional supplemental questions that they asked. Then those went away. And this year, they're not even, and and I profess that I'm not positive if this is a new thing this year or if it's actually been this way for a little bit, but they don't, they don't require the Common App main essay. However, if you're in Pitt Supplement, they clearly spell out that if you want to be considered for merit, you either need to submit the main essay for this common app or submit a different essay and they have a prompt there that you can write to if you would like to. So they're not requiring the essay, which tells me it's not a factor in their initial decision. But when they go to figure out merit, they want the essay. So that's the other thing. And there is a whole group of schools um, out there. And, um, and Karen, you and I were talking about them. But I mean, maybe you can tell us a few of like schools where they're not requiring the essay at all. And they don't have any supplemental questions. You have the option of submitting rest or you don't. How do you usually address that at some of these schools? I think, yeah, I think, first of all, if you already have an essay, send it, right? You already, yes. just send it. What, what's the harm? You already, you already have it done. I think for a student who is really exceptional and probably a slam dunk if for some reason they don't have an essay. I can't imagine why you wouldn't, but maybe you don't. Right. That kid's probably fine, but now you may not be considered for merit or the honors program. This is where those like holistic, like everything we want to know we're asking for here. You don't have to do it. But if honors college or um, merit-based money is based on this application, then I think you want to put your very best foot forward. Um, I also think if you're on the bubble, again, probably behooves you to submit an essay. So for a lot of different reasons, whether you're actually borderline not admissible or a good contender for merit, right? Those are two different kinds of students in the applicant pool. Both have a decent reason sometimes for submitting an essay. So, um, you know, if there's not one offered or they say we're not reading it, fine. Um, you know, there's a place like Arizona State comes to mind. I mean, Arizona State will give you an answer in four days. Nobody's right. reading They're that. not reading right? like, that, that essay. Is, nobody's <laughs> ever reading that, right? Like they, that went through a computer and shot out a letter to you. Like, And, and by the way, they don't ask for it. So they yeah, are not they being hypocritical. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yeah. So I do think, but I think for schools that make it optional, and again, especially if you're borderline or especially if this is going to potentially be used for merit, why wouldn't you do it? So yeah. I think that is the bottom line. Unless you're someone who decided to submit applications at the last minute and your reason for applying is specifically that they do not require an essay, which is a whole 
thing in and of itself that another we should probably talk about. Yeah, another conversation. But there's really no reason why you wouldn't submit it. What is the worst that happens is no one looks at it. Um, but the best case that happens is they need it for something that will have a positive impact on you, like merit or like being on the bubble and getting in. And then it's there and you don't have to worry about it. Yep, I agree. I, I don't know if we've offered enlightenment in any way, shape, or form. And this they may be more confused now after particular. This like, oh lord. I think the bottom line is, if a school, you know, send your essay, you've got one, and if they have supplemental questions that are pretty specific, unless you're going to call every school and confirm that they are indeed reading it, you probably should write it and do a nice job with it. Okay. And if you are interested in learning more about the personal inquiry questions. Um, Oh, for the University of California. For the University of California. Did I get that right? No, I want to call it the personal inquiry questions, but is the personal, personal insight, insight question. PIQs. PIQs. If you want to learn more about our suggestions for approaching those, we actually covered that on the show that aired on September 2nd. So you can go back into our archives and find it. Karen, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks really for appreciate it. Me. Nice to see Absolutely. you. Absolutely. All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are answering your questions. So do not go away. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I am here, as I so often am, with my colleague, Shannon Vasconcellos, who's a former financial aid officer at both Tufts and BU. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? 
I'm good, thank you. Good. Um, the scary thing is that every time I do my notes for the call, I have to think, wait, is it Tufts and BU? I have that right, right? You, <laughs> you would do. think that I would have, have it, it nailed memorized. by now. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, we're doing what we do, which is we're going to answer um, listener questions. Just yes. as a reminder to people who are listening, you can... Post your questions on Facebook. You could post them on Instagram. You could post them on LinkedIn. You could direct message us on any of those apps if you want to send in questions. Um, all right. The first question comes to us from Natalie. And Natalie asks, is there a net price price calculator for graduate programs? What is the financial aid process for these undergraduate students who have entered three plus two programs or other such programs? Are students required only to fill out FAFSA and are parents' income still required for the graduate portion of the programs? I'm noticing that the undergraduate merit scholarships at most of these programs are only awarded for the undergraduate portion and are not applicable during the graduate years. Yeah, so a lot going on there, but Natalie, I think your kind of general estimation that the scholarships are only applicable to the undergraduate portion tends to be correct. Um, there is generally no net price calculator, unfortunately, for graduate programs. That is only a federal requirement for undergraduate programs. Um, so you do really have to sort of reach out more individually to each school for their particular policy. There is a lot of variability here. Uh, and that may actually entail a conversation with both the financial aid office and potentially the academic department that that grad program is in. Um, the, the way that it works typically with these kind of dual undergrad grad programs is that at some point over the five years, or it's occasionally a six-year program, the student is officially transitioned from being a bachelor's degree candidate to being a master's degree candidate. And that happens at different points in different programs. I've seen it at the three-year mark, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, um, and at the four-year mark. Um, so that will depend on the school, the program. But whenever that happens, generally the student ceases receiving undergraduate aid at that point, and they are now eligible for financial aid as a graduate student. Um, now, for graduate studies, there doesn't tend to be tons of the sort of traditional grants and scholarships that we see as an undergrad. Um, what you see more commonly in terms of free money for grad school is an assistantship where you're kind of working a job, um, either as a, um, a teaching assistant or a research assistant, and um, you, you get sort of tu tuition remission as part of the arrangement. Outside of that, you're largely seeing graduate students paying for their studies with lots and lots of student loans. Yeah. Um, so, and as a graduate student, you are actually eligible for much more in student loans than you were as a, an undergrad student. Um, the, the direct Stafford loan program where you can get like five to $7,000 a year uh, as an undergrad, you can all of a sudden get over $20,000 
for most graduate degree programs per year. And then you can also borrow what they call a graduate plus loan, which is like the parent plus loan that parents (laughs) of undergraduate students can borrow, but it's now totally in the grad student's name Um, as part of the financial. So that's how federal financial aid works. You're basically you're eligible for more in student loans as a graduate student. In terms of any institutional aid offered by the school itself, that can really vary. There are some schools that may require parental information still, even as a graduate student. When I worked at Tufts Dental School, that was the case. We had a very limited amount of need-based grant money. But in order to apply for that, you had to apply with parental information. You could get the federal student loans on your own as a graduate student. Uh, the parent information was not required for that, but it was for the limited amount of institutional grant money that we had. Um, so, again, just a lot of variability, but typically you're transitioned at some point in the program from undergrad to grad student where things can really change. So, if you are considering one of these programs, definitely recommend talking to the school. They likely have some information on their website, but if you need more than that, talk to the financial aid office, talk to the academic department of that graduate program so that you can really plan for, you know, the length of your program because it may change when you enter official graduate student territory. All right. A lot lot going on there. Yes, definitely. It can definitely get complicated. So my first question for you comes in from Christina, and she says, my son is a high school senior and is concerned with his course schedule. Uh, It's pretty different from what he requested, Mm -hmm. but spaces in the desirable courses are tough to get this year. He currently has five classes and one free period at the end of the day. His five classes are AP Bio, AP Stats, AP Literature, Business Law, and Theater. His choice would be to add AP Macro as his sixth course, but it is full. Is he okay leaving a free period since he can't get what he wants, or should he try to add a sixth even if it's a non-AP? And by the way, she knows that we tend to recommend foreign language. The reason that he has no foreign language this year is that he took AP Spanish 5 last year, and there is no higher Spanish at his school. Okay. And I'm going to venture a guess. Here, let me answer this question, Beth. The answer is, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> it does depend. The one thing that strikes me as I look at this question and the classes that um, your son is taking, Christina, is that at some schools, they may only really feel like he has three core courses because business law and theater may in their minds not really count as academic courses. Now, the schools that I'm thinking about are the most selective schools in the country. So if he's not shooting for those, it's really less of an issue. And I don't know what the high school considers business law and or theater. You know, I don't know if theater is a literature or an English course. Sometimes they, you know, study theater, you study plays and things like that. So there's a little bit that I don't know here. What I would say is that if he could add another course, it probably would be good. And I, I would only do it, though, if it's, if it's an academic course. So right. one of the things that I see is so he's maxed out on the, um, 
on the foreign language at his school, which is fine, but I don't really see a social science and maybe they consider business law that, right. but if he could add a straight up history course or something like um, psychology or something like that, that would fall into the social science or history realm, that might be a good addition. I would worry less that it's an AP and more that it's a core Right. Right. So maybe it's that he doubles up in science again, not ideal because he's already not he's already done with foreign language. So in theory, he's already he should be doubling up on something to make up for the loss of of the foreign language. Um, So I would say that in a perfect world, he would add a history or a social science. Um, And again, it's really, I don't know what he's shooting for, what type of schools he's looking for. So that's my best advice there. And at this stage, it's October. I'm not sure that our answer is coming in soon enough. We do answer these pretty quickly after we get them. It's just that we don't, um, you know, we have to wait until we have a show where we're taping the the listener Q&A, and then we tape a, a week in advance. And so... That's the problem with the lag. But if this is helpful to others who are thinking about this, for what it's worth, um, one last suggestion that I have. uh, This is not an uncommon thing where students don't get the schedule that they had hoped for. Actually, it's happened in my own house this year. And um, there was some scrambling, but ultimately... um, the school was able to make it work. But if they couldn't have, then I was I had asked my son's school counselor to address that in her letter of support. So that's something that you could talk to the school counselor about. And then lastly, there is usually a spot there certainly is on the common application for additional information, something that you need to share about the application. And so if the school counselor has so many students that they're not even writing a letter, there really just isn't that opportunity for the counselor to address it, or if you feel like you you ask them to address it, but you just want to be so sure that the school knows about it, then your son could address it in the additional information section and say, this is the course load that I requested. Unfortunately, these were the only classes that fit and I was not able to take whatever those classes were that he wasn't able to take. So the college at least knows that that was what he was trying to do and um, that he wasn't just trying to take it easy his senior year. Right. Perfect. All right, Shannon. This question comes to you from Terry, and Terry says, My daughter is entering 12th grade, and based on our income, we don't expect to qualify for financial aid. Do we still need to complete a FAFSA application? Hmm, that sounds very familiar. It does. And we I may think, have just completely covered this in a yes. In a, yes. Yeah, I think we totally. I think this question came in before um, that segment. I think it was two weeks ago, the uh, September twenty third episode. I, I believe you had a, a an extensive conversation with our colleague Alex Bickford about that very question. So I would definitely recommend going back listening to the the September twenty third episode. I can just say very quickly. Um, reasons you don't have to submit a FAFSA if you know for sure that you're not going to qualify for need-based financial aid. Um, The know for sure point (laughs) is important in my mind. I wouldn't be taking someone's word for that because your next door neighbor didn't qualify for financial aid. That doesn't mean you won't. Uh, Definitely do the net price calculators on the school's websites to know for sure or as close to for sure as we can get if you'll qualify for need-based aid or not. If those calculators tell you you're not going to qualify for need-based aid, the other reasons you might want to submit 
uh, a FAFSA would be one. There are some schools that have a nasty policy. If you don't apply for financial aid your freshman year, they will never consider you for financial aid. So uh, some people will file it as kind of an insurance policy in case, God forbid, you lose your job two years down the line. You, you've got the FAFSA there on file. Um, it is required if you want to borrow student loans at all. Um, so that's a definite do it if you need student loans. Some colleges, it's certainly not the majority, but there are a number of colleges that require the FAFSA to even consider you for merit scholarships. So those are the things that I would think about why you may want to fill out a FAFSA. Reasons not to are fairly limited. One would be it's just a pain in the neck. And if it's not (laughs) going to do you any good and none of those things that we talked about, the loans, the kind of insurance policy, the merit scholarship are a concern for you, you don't have to do it. Um, Some people are really concerned about the security of their information and they don't like putting their financial info out there in one more place. Uh, You know, certainly there are lots of protections to build built into the FAFSA system, but, you know, it's not 100% guarantee. There is some level of risk involved with putting your information out there. Um, And then I think a relatively minor issue that people tend to get very worried about is if filing a FAFSA could disadvantage them in the admissions process. We've talked a lot in the past about need-blind, need-aware schools, where uh, potentially if you need financial aid, there could be some disadvantage in the admissions process in a limited number of cases. In most cases, applying for financial aid is not going to put you into that category where you you could be disadvantaged. It's more often needing substantial amounts of financial aid if you apply but don't need aid. At the vast majority of schools, um, you're looked at like somebody who didn't apply at all. Basically, you you don't need any aid from us. You could have some advantage in the process. Um, There may be very, very limited circumstances at a very small subset of schools where um, the fact that you applied could potentially put you at a disadvantage, even if you don't qualify. Uh, I think the chances of that are very small and at a very limited subset of schools, I would say most often where they don't have any merit scholarship with with merit scholarships with which to woo you <laughs> right. um, at, at other schools where you fall into this category of applying for aid but not qualifying uh, many schools would kind of throw some merit scholarship your way to try to entice you with that uh, but at some schools that don't have those merit scholarships small potential for some disadvantage there but uh, I think it tends to be tends to be rare that that could enter the equation in any kind of negative way. So rare as to almost be, almost not be worth mentioning is what I would say too. And filling out the FAFSA so that you could qualify for things like work study or federal loans, you do not actually have to check the box to apply for aid, right? That, so that's a key difference too. So you might yeah. want to fill out the FAFSA, but not check the box if you've done the net price calculator and you know you're not going to qualify for aid. Right. We get that question a lot. And in my, so in my estimation, I think that that's right, Beth. The question you will find on the Common App about applying for fi- financial aid um, Schools do actually have the option of phrasing things differently, but in every case I've seen, it says, 
do you intend to pursue need-based financial aid or do you intend to apply for need-based financial aid? If you know you're not going to qualify for need-based financial aid and are just wanting merit scholarships, non-need-based loans, in my estimation, you're absolutely fine saying no to that question. Right. Right. But still filling out the FAFSA. So, yes. Okay. We're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we have more questions that we're going to answer. So don't go away. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back. We have been answering your questions, and we're going to jump right in and answer some more. And I think that we're starting out with a question for me. Yes, and this question comes in from Jennifer, and Jennifer asks, what is your recommendation about including a resume with the Common App? Should it always be done, or only if the student has something to add to what is in the activities section? Does the selectivity of the school to which the student is applying factor into this decision? Uh, Okay, so my recommendation is no, it should not always be done. I think if a student has accurately and adequately completed the Common App activity section of the uh, Common Application, then they are fine and they don't need to submit something extra. Um, I would say that the tendency can be, I want to submit a lot of extra, the more selective the school goes, I becomes, or sorry, the more selective the school the more people want to throw a ton of stuff at them. And actually, and ironically, that's probably the time to pull back. So um, 
I really do feel like if it's not new information, if you're just rehashing what is already in the activities section, then I would not submit a resume. If you really could not fit everything that you did onto the Common App activity section, an alternative to including a resume would be to add the additional stuff into the additional information section. If it is that you are doing some very unique things that at a glance are not pretty clear, right? I know what editor-in-chief of the newspaper does. I don't really need a long explanation for that, but perhaps you have done your own separate project that's totally unrelated to anything at school and the 150 characters you get to describe it on the Common App just really isn't allowing you to help the admissions committee understand what you are actually doing. That might be an example of it might fit into the additional information section also, or it might be something that you write your essay about, or barring that, maybe it is better um, kind of laid out in a resume. The key thing I would say is um, there are some schools that do not offer you the opportunity to upload a resume. They don't encourage you to submit one. And I think for those, you definitely don't want to submit an essay. If right on the application, they give you the opportunity to upload an essay, I mean, a resume, again, I really do feel like if you're not adding, adding anything new, I'm not sure I would take that opportunity. But if they offer you the opportunity, I don't think it hurts if you upload a resume. I just don't think it's necessary. Right. Um, there are some schools where they do ask you to include a resume. Obviously, for those schools, you want to include it. The last thing I will say on this front, as a former admissions officer who read a lot of files every day, the more um, precisely and succinctly you can lay the information out in a highly readable, consumable way, the better. I'm a big fan of lifting, listing grades in which you participated versus years. If you list years, I have to do math. Don't make your admissions officer do math. If I have to think, now wait, they were a freshman and it was, was it 2020, 2021 that they were a freshman or were they a sophomore? You've already lost me. I don't have time to do math. We, they want to know hours per week and weeks per year. If you are omitting that information, it's also not super useful, right? So the resume is meant to help you see at a glance what a student was involved in and what that entailed and what their role, specifically their role, right? You also don't want a lot of definitions of things. You want to understand the student's role in the thing. Um, so... You know, in my mind, the resume should not look, my son's resume should look nothing like my resume. I have a working resume. He has a high school activities resume. They're very different things. And so just when you think about resumes, those are, those are some of the things I would think about. Definitely not required uh, for every student. All right, Shannon, this question comes from Cameron. I've heard your team reference making sure you have one or more financial safety schools on your list. What exactly is a financial safety? How do I know if the colleges on my son's list make the cut? Great question. Yeah, and I'd say there's no technical precise definition of financial safety. In my mind, a financial safety school is one that you know you can afford for sure. So you go to the college's website, you see they have their cost of attendance listed, and you look at your budget and you say, yeah, I can swing this out of pocket. Right. Um, 
that would definitely be considered a financial safety. Um, I think you could also arguably include schools that have a very defined numeric merit scholarship policy where they spell it out on their website. If you get XGPA or YSAT score, you get Z scholarship. That is guaranteed. You know that. Definitely not every school does that. Some are much more, uh, they want to give themselves more wiggle room in terms of who they award scholarships to, but when they spell it out on their website and you know for sure that your child meets those qualifications um, and with the amount of that merit scholarship, now that school is within your price range, I think I would call that a financial safety. Um, Also, potentially, um, if you filled out the net price calculator for the school and therefore you know it's not 100% guaranteed, but is usually accurate as long as the information you, you've put into the calculator is accurate, you know what need-based financial aid they're going to give you. And with that need-based financial aid, you can afford any remainder out of pocket. I think I would call that a financial safety school. So Again, essentially, one, you know you can afford either totally out of pocket or with guaranteed merit scholarships or the uh, financial aid that they have indicated they're going to offer you on the net price calculator. I think I would call any school that falls into any of those categories a financial safety. Um, And I think the other piece of it that's very important, you also have to be able to get into that school and be very sure that you, you none of that helps if you can afford this school, but you probably won't get in, but that's not a safety, you know, of any kind. So it needs to be an academic safety. You know, your grades, test scores are kind of well above average. Um, Very probably you will get in and you can afford it as well. That's what you need at least one of on your child's list, uh, again, if, if not multiple. So, uh, you know, how do you know if the school's on your child's list, make the cut, it, take a look. Can I afford, what's their price? Can I afford it out of pocket? No. Well, are there guaranteed merit scholarships that my child qualifies for? No. Have I filled out the net price calculator and I see the financial aid they're going to give me? Can I afford the school with that financial aid? No. <laughs> then it is not a financial not safety. Not a financial You've safety. You've got to do a little bit more research and find uh, one or more schools that fit that bill and that your son can almost positively get into. Right. And a couple of other things that I would know, and Shannon, I literally know of one school where they lay it out super clearly, the kind of like, if you have this, you get this. Alabama yeah. does a brilliant yes, job of that. Do. Are there a lot more that do that? I don't know of any others, actually. Yeah, Alabama, I would say, is the one that springs to mind that does it really well. Um, It tends to be more the case, more certain at the public universities, more so than the private schools. I almost very rarely see it at the private schools. Public schools tend to give you a better idea, uh, though I would say it was more the case when schools were not test optional. Yes. Um, I think when they, they would often spell out this test score gets you this scholarship without yeah. the test scores, it has become more complicated. And I think fewer schools uh, are making such a guarantee because they've got to figure things out on their end a little bit more. Right, and they right. don't want to make those guarantees. And actually that highlights something that I have been 
saying, I wish I wasn't, but for some of these larger state schools, um, we have a theme in today's uh, show, I guess, around these, but it's very, when they're, when their system and the way that they do admissions is not set up to do it without a test score, right? When they're, when their system is around rigor of curriculum, grades, and test scores, it's more difficult for them to pivot, which is not to say that they're not pivoting, just that it might be easier to qualify for those merit scholarships if you've got the score. I can think of a few schools where I've seen them sort of spell it out. But then if you don't have the scores, then they want you to write an essay. And it's, you know, it's, it's clearly trickier. It's a trickier process. And so while I am not at all an advocate of test, 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 in fact, I would love to tell every listener to the show, you definitely do not have to test it always depends because you, I don't know where you're applying. And if, if you have state schools in your sites and schools that are going to offer merit money, the best thing you could probably do if you can test safely yep. would probably be to test. So anyway, Absolutely. wish it was something different. <laughs> I know. Uh, and oh, that actually leads, I think, exactly into our oh, next does, question doesn't from, it? From, from Maria. <laughs> Maria says, my daughter, who is a sophomore, is not a great test taker, and we are considering not having her do any standardized tests at all, given how many schools are test optional. Do you think this is a problem? Well, I'm just to kind of continue on with what I was just saying. On the one hand, no, I don't think it is. I think that for some students, testing is just never going to be a strength. They could spend a lot of time and quite honestly, a lot of money trying to prep to do well on those tests and they will still not be good or not be in line with what they are capable of doing or what they do in the classroom. Um, so I think that the answer is, Sure, you could forego the testing. And if you can, I think that's great. If you're applying to the UCs, guess what? They're not even going to look at scores, so they will do you zero good there. Um, Unfortunately, it's tough to get into the UCs these days. And so um, if you're going to have financial safeties, if you're going to have academic safeties, you might need to look beyond that. There are a couple of states, uh, Georgia and Florida, right now, where their state institutions require test scores. That is not a choice that the schools themselves are making. Those are decided by um, governmental bodies that they are not controlling. And so I know sometimes if you feel strongly that that test scores, scores should not be required, the tendency is to blame the school, but it's not really the school's fault. They would like to be test optional. Um to the best of my knowledge, based on what I see them saying. Uh, In that case, it's out of their hands. But if you live in Florida and you have some wonderful institutions in Florida and they are very reasonably priced, it may be that you really want to test because that's going to be required there. Same for Georgia. Um, If you know that you're probably not going to look at larger state schools or you're going to look at your in-state school where your child is pretty qualified and they're not requiring test scores for anything that's important, then you can get away with that. And there are many, many schools that are test optional. The one caveat I would say is that if your daughter is a sophomore, we just don't know what policies will look like by the time she's a senior. Uh, 
Right. Uh, what all indications are that test optional is here to stay in in the it's always been around, but the the huge uptake of test optional is probably here to stay because a lot of colleges, if other colleges are test optional and they decide to require them again, well, guess what? Then they're going to lose those applicants who are saying you are the only school that's requiring me to test. I'm just not going to. I'm just not going to apply. Right. So. I think that's the tricky part is are some schools going to come back and require testing? Probably not, but I can't say for sure today because I don't have a crystal ball. But if I was a betting woman, I would say it's probably a pretty safe bet that you could go without testing if you're not interested in any of those schools that I just mentioned. Yep. All right, Shannon, this question comes to us from Diego. Diego asks or says, oh, my favorite. I heard that. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know it. Oh, man. And Diego, yes, you, this is a quintessential. I have heard I heard that statement and yes. question because what follows is totally not true. Okay. <laughs> I heard that if we don't claim our son as a dependent on our tax return, he can apply for financial aid without us. Diego, if that was true. <laughs> it sounds too good to be true, right? That's the other sure thing. Does. If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably because it's not. But is this accurate? My son is a high school junior, so we'll be applying for college next year. And we're wondering if we shouldn't claim him when we file our taxes this year. No, that is, <laughs> short, very short answer. No, that will not help him to be independent. There are very specific qualifications for financial aid independency. The student being married, having kids of their own, being in foster care, under legal guardianship, being in the military. Other than that, schools are generally going to require parental information. So go ahead and claim him and pay less taxes. All right. And with that, we're out. Don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.